We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for FlexBox, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B-E to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights, strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. We invite you to join us as we discuss how to shift the classroom, the learning environment, the mindset, and the pedagogy to try something new, reignite wonder, and reimagine education. If you are in the Bay Area, we are currently accepting applications for students for the fall of 2023. Yes, we have limited spots available, and also for our elementary and middle school starting at TK through seventh grade for fall of 2024. Up Academy has created our framework so that new and existing schools can develop imaginative, exciting, relevant, engaging learning environments for all of their students. We're excited to introduce the Rebel Project Literacy Curriculum. It's a fully integrated literacy and project-based learning curriculum that supports social-emotional development and is based on skills and competencies. Learn more at projectup.us. Have you ever thought of opening your own school? Project Up is also supporting new educators and families to create schools like Up Academy and schools of your own design. Reach out to join our affiliate network at projectup.us. Now, let's get to today's episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome, Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Dr. Karen Dudek Brannan. She is the founder of Dr. Karen LLC, a company focused on empowering educators to support language, literacy, executive functioning, and cognitive wellness. She currently offers professional development focused on helping K-12 teams develop programs and services that support students in the areas of leadership, language, literacy, and executive functioning. Dr. Karen is a licensed speech and language pathologist and has a doctorate in special education, a special education director license, and an assistive technology graduate certificate. She spent 14 years in school systems before starting her online education company in 2015. She's currently the host of DeFacto Leaders podcast. 
Now, I'm so excited to talk about executive functioning and what it means in an educational setting. Welcome, Dr. Karen. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start there because we hear so much right now, especially around anxiety, around diagnosis that students and kids are getting because of the pandemic or since the pandemic or things that we're noticing because of the situations we've been put in over the past few years. And it's leading to a lot of anxiety, both for students and for parents. So can you talk a little bit about those challenges and what you're seeing related to anxiety in school and how that might play out? Yeah. So the challenge with that is that with executive functioning and anxiety, it's this constant chicken or egg debate where it's what's causing what. And it can kind of go both ways because if you're anxious, then it is going to impact your ability to problem solve and be present and use the parts of your brain that help you to do those things. But if you have a difficult time planning with some of the specific executive functioning skills, which I can kind of get into the details in a few minutes here, but if you're not able to do that, you're going to go into situations kind of feeling like you're jumping off a cliff and that's going to cause you to be anxious. So it's this circle that we're kind of going, you know, again, we're kind of going in circles here where I think parents and teachers are trying to figure out how to support students, especially when they're seeing behaviors, seeing them not want to go to school, seeing them feel socially isolated or not really want to engage with peers or not knowing how to engage with peers. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it, but I do think that if we truly understand executive functioning, it is one of those really important proactive measures that we can put in place regardless of whether it's a symptom or a cause and all of those types of things. Yeah, one of the things that I was reading in some of the things that you've published and put out is that for many kids, executive dysfunction is often the cause of anxiety. So solutions that neglect it aren't likely to work. And I think as an educator and probably as parents, one of the first things we want to do is say, okay, while you're having anxiety, we'll go find a therapist. Mm-hmm. But if the talk therapy isn't supporting the actual root of the problem, it's not likely to work. So can you talk a little bit about, I guess, taking a step backwards and looking at the definition of executive functioning? And when we look at executive dysfunction, how different strategies are more likely to work if that is part of the cause of the anxiety? Right. So, and just to give a little context with my background as a speech pathologist, I work with more of the learning and the cognitive aspects. So I also am somebody who have done therapy. It looks different than if another field who is working on the mental health issue. So I'm certainly not saying that we should never send kids to therapy. There are many times when, (laughs) obviously, right, you know, whether it be because they need some very specific intensive treatment in a therapy environment, that does need to be delivered one-on-one, for example, in order for them to build skills so that they can better access their curriculum, or whether there are things that, you know, from a trauma and things like that, that they've gone through where it does make sense for them to have somebody safe that they can talk to. So obviously, there's certainly a place for those things. But when we're seeing that kids are talking through those things and they're still showing avoidance and those types of things, A lot of times it is a skill-based issue that is not being dealt with. So when I talk to people about 
executive functioning. Sometimes I try to organize it into some of the categories that they're describing as far as the pain points or the the challenges that they're seeing. So how it can look is that there are impacts attention. So your ability to attend to the things that you need to focus on and filter out the things that you don't. Part of that is just your ability to self-regulate and determine what is and isn't important. And part of that is working memory. When there's a lot of information coming in, can you process and retain and use the information that's relevant and not pay attention to the things that aren't relevant? So there's that one aspect of it there. And want to know one of my biggest frustrations with ed tech? Tools that assume every student learns the same way at the same pace. I need my technology to do more for me. That's why it's so important for me to know that IXL provides true personalized learning across the entire pre-K to 12 curriculum and that it's proven benefit to all student populations, including English learners and students in special education programs. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results, combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com slash B for a demo. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Another thing is your ability to think back on past situations and apply that to new situations. So that's called episodic memory. So can I think back to the past and recall what happened, recall the events, really have this picture of this thing that happened to me in the past, use that information from that past event or things that I've learned and apply it to the future. So that is part of our executive functioning skills, our ability to, quote, learn from our mistakes and apply information from the past or even know what would be relevant to think about. The other thing is just our ability to think into the future, think about what is my end goal? What does it look like? What does it feel like? So not just thinking the words, like how do you write it down on a piece of paper, but what is this vivid feeling that I have? And can I see myself doing this end goal? What does it look like? Like an example that parents often struggle with with their kids is, The kid says the room's clean and the parents are like, this room isn't clean. Well, you have to have a picture of what clean looks like. So what is that end goal? And then what does it look like to plan and get to that end goal? So knowing the steps to take to get there, also knowing what it physically looks like to do all of those steps. So not just the how do I list those steps out with language, but also what does it look like in my head? Can I picture those steps? and Can I figure out what I need to be able to do in order to get there? And then the other thing that is often neglected or not thought of as much, I think a lot of times people think of executive functioning as being organized, being able to work towards a goal and understanding how to figure out what the steps are. But you also have to understand how long those things will take. So you have to have a good sense of time. You have to have the ability to sense time. So for example, if you have a task in front of you, it's not just about understanding what do I need to do right now, but it's also how long will these things take? A lot of times kids who struggle with time perception 
they might have something in front of them that they don't want to do. And the adult can see that it doesn't take that long. But to them, it feels so overwhelming because they don't have that sense of time. They can't sit there and, you know, have this conversation with themselves and say, well, it's just five minutes. Let me just get it done so I can do the thing that I want to do afterwards. If you struggle with that sense of time, those things are going to seem way more overwhelming than they actually are. And then that does make it hard for you to motivate yourself when it seems overwhelming. You can't think of a past situation where you were successful doing the thing. And also you can't really envision yourself being successful. So those are all the things that you need in order to be able to plan, stay organized, motivate yourself in the moment to do something that isn't you know your favorite thing to do. That's why we see a lot of those things where kids, it's presenting as a behavior or defiance or lack of motivation or anxiety because, I mean, who wouldn't be nervous if you were feeling like that? And then with the the social situations, because of the issues with attention and working memory, you know, if you think about, I'll use an adult example that I've experienced. Like I used to, when I was in the schools, you know, obviously I would have to run IEP meetings. Well, there's this defined structure of how you run an IEP meeting. There's a clear delineation of who's supposed to be talking at what time. So I would feel pretty confident doing that. Where I would get really nervous is the staff Christmas party because it's so unstructured. You have to go in there and like look around and look at all these different conversations that are going on and figure out how to jump in. So the ability to do that does require a lot of working memory. And you've got to be constantly paying attention, thinking about like, how am I coming across to other people? That requires a lot of executive functioning skills. So when kids are avoiding social situations that are actually going to help them build skills and make them feel better, a lot of times that is part of what kids are experiencing. So all of these things are really impacted by executive functioning just because of our ability to visualize, plan, and then just problem solve on the spot and adjust. The Rebel Educators, if you're anything like me, Dr. Karen just described a whole bunch of aspects of your life. (laughs) The one that stands out for me is the idea of time perception. Like I'm really great at time management and blocking my time and figuring out these are the times that I do podcast recordings, for example. These are the times I talk to prospective families. These are the times that I set aside for creative work where I need to write copy or newsletters or whatever I need to do, right? And Oftentimes, I have this perception of how long a thing is going to take me. For example, when I've got to balance the books and look at that piece of the business, and I feel like I need four hours, half a day set aside to do this because it feels like such an overwhelming task. And as a side note, I recently saw like a meme of this that was a circle chart that was a full pie. And the majority of the pie was time I spend thinking about doing the task. And like a one eighth (laughs) sliver of the pie was time it will actually take me to do the task. Mm -hmm. And I've been talking about that with my kids recently, too. Like, you know, the time that we've spent talking about you not wanting to do it, you could have finished it by now (laughs) if you would have Uh just gone and done it. But I have this, especially when it comes to bookkeeping, I have this idea that it's going to take me forever. And in reality, as long as I do it regularly, it's like a 30-minute task. Yeah. I don't need a four-hour block. It's not that long. And so the idea of time management and time perception really, really hit home for me. <laughs> I feel the same way about my accounting. Every time it's the first of the month, I'm like, I don't want to do it. And again, 30 minutes, just get it done. But yeah, a lot of people tend to 
inflate things that they don't want to do and then minimize. I mean, if you had to do something that you didn't want to do and it was going to take 30 minutes, 30 minutes feels like in eternity. But if it was, oh, you could watch your favorite show for 30 minutes. It's like, really? Only 30 minutes? That's nothing, you know? Absolutely. And also the things that we like to do often, then we get into them and then we do the next thing and then we do the next thing and the 30 minutes we had planned, like, yeah, we got that thing done and we got the next three things done. But now we've spent an hour and a half of our time blocked that was spent, you know, supposed to be spent on something else. But we had a good time and we got into the flow state and all of that's important too. Well, and that's when it feels like the time is going by so quickly. And, you know, I think that people, who understand how to manage their time, understand that your perception of time is going to feel different in different tasks. And it is really important to find ways to be talking about that to kids and how their brains work, because sometimes that avoidance is just a result of them kind of misunderstanding these gut default emotional responses to how they're feeling in the moment and the choices that they're making when really there's probably a way that they can at least have a better understanding of how to respond to those things that they're feeling. Absolutely. Time flies when we're having fun, right? Exactly. (laughs) Uh, One of the other things you talked about was the social impact of that and the ability to read the room and the example of a meeting that's fully set out and structured feels easy which for a lot of students, that's school, right? Their schedule's on the wall or they're on a bell schedule and they know exactly how long they have for each thing. But something like a Christmas party or for students, lunch break, where we're just hanging out and reading the room seems more challenging. And a lot of times if we see this as educators, we'll say, oh, they need to be in a social skills group. Why don't you go find a group where they can work through these things? But sometimes those don't work well. So can you talk about maybe a little of the pros and cons of like an adult-led social skills group and maybe if you have ideas or what do we do instead? Yeah. So I think the main thing that I want to communicate is that you don't want to totally throw the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of these things that people are doing, it's like they're part of the way there and what they were thinking, but the actual implementation of it just needs to be tweaked slightly in order for it to actually work. With adult-led social skills groups, a lot of times they're very academic, and it's not that an academic setting is bad for kids to be in. Sometimes it's appropriate for them to know how to handle that type of situation, but it's not the same. It's a very different set of skills to be able to understand how to be successful in a classroom where a teacher is guiding the discussion versus something that is less structured where you do have to think on the spot. And the way that it's handled many times, because I've been involved in that area as somebody who's doing the teaching, somebody who's actually done the social skills groups, there's a lot of these, these are the rules for a social situation. And you're kind of just teaching kids these rules in this academic format. So what you're teaching them how to do is be able to answer a question about how they're supposed to act in a certain situation. So they can take a test about how to respond in a situation and give you the right answer. So again, it's very academic. It's not the same thing as actually being in that situation and applying those same skills. 
So I think we just need to understand what skills we're actually working on and make sure that we're giving kids the practice of the right skills. So a way that you could tweak that, it's not that you necessarily need to take the group away, but it's there might be a portion of that where there is an adult who's leading the discussion and talking through and having a discussion with kids about, we've got this situation coming up. How can we think about this situation? How can we prepare for it? And sort of use it as a strategy session and front loading and talking about the ways that we might problem solve through this situation that is new, that's coming up. And then the kids can go experience it. And maybe there are adults there while they're going through this situation. Maybe they're there to kind of cue and redirect or maybe even just be there to make sure that everyone's safe and everything like that. And then there could be a follow-up where it's, okay, how did that go and what did we learn? And so it's kind of this model of front-loading, doing, and then reevaluating, and then more front-loading for the future. So it's not that we want to take away that group. It's just that we want to use it differently and use it in the right context. And when I've seen people do this more effectively, it's more within that model. So Again, the thing that I'm often asked to do or that I have been asked to do in the past since I've been online selling products and offering services for therapists, a lot of times they'll be like, well, I want some social skills or social stories scripts. And I'm like, I don't know your students. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what you're working on. So you don't need me to give you a printable story to read to your students because I have no context for what they're actually working through. And if I do that, I've completely taken the student out of the problem-solving process that they need to do to be able to think about that situation that's coming up. So I've totally bypassed the opportunity for them to actually work on their executive functioning skills. But if I give you a framework for kind of understanding what questions to ask your student and what you might need to think about, you can make the situation a lot more functional and reasonable and also just applicable to the student. So I'm more about frameworks for answering questions and problem solving rather than like, here's this story you need to read to your students. I mean, the main thing is that you need to understand the internal thought processes that go on behind the scenes while you're doing those things and not just focus on what's happening on the outside. Yeah, listening to you describe the way to run a circle or a session It reminded me a lot of the way we just use project-based learning to develop a lot of these skills and that we start with a question and then we work through a process and then there's reflection at the end and how we build in the social-emotional development into project learning in school. It made me think of the idea of in a social skills group doing a role play. How do you prepare for that situation? Let's actually stand up and walk through it and talk through it and see what that's going to feel like. And it's something that Personally, I absolutely hate to do. And whenever I do it, I feel better and it goes well. And it's one of those things that I have so much validation for proof that it works, like proof of concept in my brain and all the times that it's worked and it's helped and I still hate it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And I'm sure there are others that feel that way. But I do know like as I've gotten older and as I've gone to things and had to be much more cognizant of how I'm using my time, making sure I prepare for those situations and like, who do I want to see in the room? Who do I want to talk to? What is my end goal? What do I want to accomplish here? And then making sure that, yeah, those conversations are super hard to insert yourself into, 
but that's the reason I'm there. So how do I go about inserting myself into those conversations and meeting the right people? But hearing you talk about learning social skills in an academic sense made me think about a conversation I actually just had with my daughter. So I have a 12-year-old daughter. She's in seventh grade. And she was telling me about their advisory program last year and how they used an online social-emotional development program. But they didn't talk about it at all in advisory. They'd log in, they'd do their session online, and then they'd get the right answers and they'd log out. I understand that and I get where they're going. Like You want to see different situations. You want to see how it's handled differently. But unless you take it one step further and at the very least have a conversation about what you saw, how it made you feel, how it might have been handled differently, or taking one step further into how do we role play what you just saw here, can we role play different scenarios? What else might have happened if this person might have said that differently or just if something socially different had happened and playing that out? And she was like, yeah, we don't do that. And I just heard a statistic that said... On average, Gen Z has had 10 hours less time per week socializing than generations before, just because of activities and phones and computers. Like they just don't spend as much face to face human time as generations, well, old people like me or generations before them. Yes. And we're trying to overcome that by giving them more time on screens where they can see people interacting. And I'm feeling like there's a disconnect between trying to support and give students the development that they need and actually being able to do that in person. Yeah. We can't teach human social skills without other humans, I guess, is where I'm going. <laughs> yeah. And the online stuff, it's hard. And I think about that when you're like, oh, the old people like us. It's so funny because when I met my husband, I had been in a long-term relationship. So I hadn't been doing the dating thing. And like, just how we interact with people in general is different. And I've said before, like with dating, this is applies to friendships too, but it's like people forget that the point of the online stuff is just to make the connection. And then you're supposed to take it and go in person. And I remember just being like, all these people are doing is talking online. The whole point of this is just to connect with someone, use a tool, make it more convenient to make a connection, and then go to the end person. And now it's like these interactions are all happening online. And, and it was just weird. I was like, are you gonna, are we gonna just talk through Messenger? What what is this? Like, and I know that that's more of an adult example, but it's happening with the way that kids interact and socialize too. And so I don't think that it's going away, but I think it's just the idea that. That's fine. Plan your get together on your Snapchat or your text chain, but then go and do something in person. And with boys, it's different because there's more of the emphasis on gaming. And it's like, okay, that's not a an in-person interaction if you just have online friends and all you do is interact on the game. Sure, it's fine to get together with your friends and play video games as long as you do lots of other things too. And that's not the only thing. And so I mean, again, just the idea of let's use the tools. They're not going away. We're going to be expected to use them. You're, you're going to be expected to have digital literacy skills in order to have a job one day, most likely, depending on what you do in a lot of industries. But also, I don't know. I am concerned about that as well. And that's just sort of what I'm seeing where it's like, like we're forgetting the whole 
purpose of why these tools are beneficial. And we're using them as a replacement rather than an enhancement. And I just hope that we can get away from that. That's a good distinction that they need to be an enhancement and not a replacement. And also, I want to identify the irony that we are speaking and talking online and have never (laughs) met in real life. (laughs) But this is an example of an enhancement because I'm in Illinois, you're in California, and we are using technology to spread information. And this is, I think to me, this is an example of how you can use it to benefit you, like a positive way to use technology. We want to make sure that after we log off from this conversation, we go and have in-person interactions with people in our neighborhoods and our personal lives outside of this. Yeah, yeah. It makes me think of Ready Player One, where he's defining his best friends because they meet in their secret room within the video game. So the whole thing pretty much takes place in a virtual reality and they all have their avatars and he doesn't really have friends in the real world. All of his friends are in what we might think of as the metaverse, but in the virtual reality of the game. And when they actually all meet in person at the end, it's very awkward and nobody knows how to talk to each other and they all feel like they don't know each other and they all look differently than they expected them to look because you can create an online persona to be whoever you want it to be, but that's not who you actually are. Those are the aspects of yourself that you like. And so it's really interesting when it starts to take over. Yeah. Well, and the whole thing about being able to plan ahead to a long-term goal and think about how long it will take, but also persist. I mean, that requires a lot of executive functioning skills because you have to constantly talk to yourself and engage in this internal dialogue to do things that maybe you don't feel like doing because you're reminding yourself of where am I going? How can I adjust what I'm doing to get there as I'm noticing how long this is taking, as I'm noticing whether or not I'm being successful, but also motivating yourself by thinking about past situations and knowing how to take that information and use it to be more successful, but also talk yourself through things and say, hey, I was successful in that situation that was similar. And this is something that's you know not the same as before, but I can apply something from one situation to another and keep myself going. Whereas if you are doing things in a virtual reality, a lot of times you can get immediate gratification. Like I know when I was in college, The Sims was really popular. It's still a thing now. And so I guess I never was cool enough to figure this out, but there's this hack that you can do where you can make it, you know how you can get a job and earn money in there? then you can buy a house and create your whole neighborhood. Well, there's this hack where you can just like type in a code in the computer and it'll just make you have more money. And so you can just type in a quick thing and then just have more money. And so it's like these digital experiences are really reinforcing that immediate gratification. And when you're used to that, it is really hard to go into the real world where things don't happen right away and you have to persist through things and things are messy. Interactions with people are not straightforward and you have to be thinking about, okay, how am I responding to them in this conversation? What might they be thinking? How am I coming across to other people and what are my goals and all of those types of things? You don't have to think about that and have those experiences and be more vulnerable, honestly. It does make it harder. So I think when we are talking about the whole UDL conversation, there are kids who 
they need certain skills if they have a brain difference, like if they have ADHD or autism or other things that impact language. There are times when we do need to teach specific foundational skills because they don't learn things implicitly like other people do. So we do need to work on the language skills. We might need to work on some things that do impact cognition and executive functioning. And sometimes that does need to be in a smaller group or a separate setting so that they can be more successful over here in the general education classroom or wherever else they are interacting with their peers. But I think that for me as a person who has had a background in special ed, I was initially trained where it's what are the supplemental interventions, but I quickly realized when I was on a school team that you cannot think about tier three and special ed without thinking about the entire curriculum because a lot of times you can help the students who are getting interventions be more successful if you are thinking about what's going on with all the kids, but also sometimes you can prevent having to pull kids out as much by doing things universally in the curriculum. So I think as we really get a good understanding of what experiences we're creating for kids, it can kind of help us to understand not just what do we do for the kids that are identified, but also what are we doing for all the kids so that it's benefiting everybody, but also it's making it easier for the kids that do need some supplemental supports. I love the ideas of universal design. And we talk a lot about universal accommodations here at Up Academy and how we create an environment that works for everyone. So often the supports and accommodations that might be included on someone's individual plan are things that all students could benefit from. Could you talk a little bit more about what that looks like in practice or give examples of what you've seen of universal design that supports learning for all students? Yeah. So the first thing that I see that is an opportunity where, you know, a lot of kids, if executive functioning is a struggle, they might need some support in this area. But just the way that we use lists and planners and organizing tools, I think the main thing that we need to realize is that if you are putting a list on the board and having students just write it down, you're kind of bypassing the planning process. So we do need to make sure that if we're using strategies like that, we need to be also teaching the thought processes and the planning that go into thinking about what are my assignments for the week? What needs to go on this list? So just developing that understanding of what skills does it take to use a list, to use an assignment book? And so giving opportunities to work on some of those skills and not just assuming that students are going to be able to use those tools just because we put them in front of students. Like if you're a list person, you're probably already engaging in a lot of internal processes, like thinking about all those things that I mentioned. Like let's say you have a student who's in study hall at the end of the day and it's like, all right, what do I need to do this week at home, in my study hall? What are my projects that are due? You know, you have to kind of think back to your day and think about, all right, what did my teachers tell me about what are the ongoing projects that I have? So there's that thought process to what already happened and then talking through, all right, what language do I actually write down on this list or my assignment book? And then how can I think about what my goals are and think back? So just a little bit more awareness around that and just building some of those types of things in that are going to be needed for certain students to access a curriculum, but will probably be beneficial to all students. 
The other opportunity that I see is just really embedding self-talk and getting that reflective language and pausing and opportunities to just kind of think and strategize about the steps. I do see a lot of people who are already doing this. I just think that we could tighten it up in certain places. As I've talked to a lot of math teachers, they tend to be pretty good at this because there's a lot of strategy and problem solving. There's a lot of, okay, stop, reflect, think about what the steps are, think about what I need to do to prepare. So embedding those types of things into the day and modeling self-talk, modeling your internal planning and thoughts that you're having as you're planning through things can be a big opportunity because I think what people don't realize is that kids who struggle with executive functioning aren't just automatically engaging in that internal dialogue that we have with ourselves in order to plan. And it comes so naturally to us that we think everyone's doing it. And a lot of those students aren't doing it. So if we can embed some of that in there, again, for the students who are already doing it to some extent, it enhances things for them. For the other students who maybe would be totally lost without it, it's going to help give them some supports and modeling that they're going to need. And then the final thing where I see as the big opportunity is realizing the importance of teaching time perception and understanding how some of these digital tools are impacting that. If you look at a digital clock that has numbers on it, the reason that that's hard for some kids is that if you look at numbers, you have to look at those symbols and in your head, interpret what that means. They kind of create this internal visual. So like if I look at my clock and it says 415, I can in my head kind of see an analog clock and what that might look like. I can sort of sense those units of time and those blocks of time and what they feel like because I have this mental schema of what those numbers mean. But if I don't have that, the symbols aren't going to mean anything to me. And so putting a timer in front of me isn't going to be super helpful. So really getting more towards using things that show time blocks, even just using analog clocks more often instead of only using digital can be one place where we have an opportunity to do that. And for kids who are having a hard time with just pacing, even just having them have some kind of a clock that's accessible to them, or at least in their vicinity that they can kind of see those blocks of time and remembering to look back at it and monitor how long things are taking, putting some of that into the curriculum. And when we're thinking about self-talk and strategies, that can make a big impact as well. And then also when we're thinking long-term about planners, just schedules that show blocks of time as opposed to things that are in these digital files where you can't see that is another opportunity where we can make things more accessible. So I think just realizing that a lot of these digital tools, if they don't physically show something, it's kind of hard for kids to develop that sense of time if they don't already have it. So think about some people, and this is me as well, you know, when you're organizing your things and sometimes people, if you can't see things, it's like you feel like they're not there and you kind of wanted to see all your stuff laid out. And so that can create a lot of anxiety for kids if they can't envision what's in those file folders and what's lying ahead of them. So just realizing that sometimes we need to pull things out and make them more visual and just, you know, having an awareness of the tools and how they're showing that can be a place where we can make things more accessible. And again, beneficial for everybody, but necessary for some. We need the tools to use the tools. 
Yes. Gosh, I mean, think about when you're writing, and this is something that's really interesting that I like to play around with and that I think is really important for kids to realize. If I'm writing something and I'm stuck and I'm trying to write it digitally and I just, I'm like, I can't, it's just not coming to me, then I will get a pen and start writing it on a piece of paper. Because for me, that starts to get my thoughts going and it does something for me neurologically. For other people, they like to talk through it with somebody and get their thoughts organized that way. So I think just that awareness of like, how do you get your ideas together and your thoughts organized? Because anybody who's a writer understands how much goes into the final draft before you get there. So thinking of all of these tools is like, this is the final draft. You know, we wouldn't put the final draft and expect students to get to that final draft on the first step. So let's think about all the steps that need to happen in order for them to get there. Yeah, visual timers are something that we use in all of our classrooms that has helped our students quite a bit. Like we have the schedule on the board and there's an analog clock in the room, but also, hey, we have 20 minutes left in literacy to work on this and actually having a visual that they can see the blue space is slowly disappearing and this is how much time I have left. I have a neighbor who bought those for her five-year-old son for the same reason. Be like, okay, we're having dinner in a half an hour. You need to be cleaned up or we're leaving in 10 minutes. You need to get your shoes and socks on. And so she'd set the timers for him, which he loved. He knew exactly where they were going, what they were doing, how much time he had. Except then she'd do the thing that we do as parents when he'd ask for something and she'd be like, oh, in just a minute. And he'd set the timer for a minute and be like, mommy, oh, it's been a minute. (laughs) Or she'd be like, I'll be with you in just five minutes. And he'd set the timer and like I quickly learned as a parent never to say a minute. I always say a moment and they say, how long is a moment? I'm like, well, a moment is when I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, another social skill. Yeah. The opportunity to understand when language sometimes isn't literal, maybe. Yes. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. One of the things we did in my house for the morning was I have an analog clock and I actually wrote lines on it. So you can see from... 7.50 to 8.15, it's wake-up time. And from 8.15 yep. to 8.30, it's breakfast. And then there's another line like 8.30 to 8.40, put shoes on, pack bag. And then they can see, and these times aren't accurate because we have to be somewhere before then. But just as an example, they can see exactly like, oh, it's in breakfast time, I should be eating breakfast. Oh, it's in brush teeth time, I need to go brush my teeth. And it has solved so many of our morning struggles and me going, you gotta brush your teeth. You got to put your shoes on. We're leaving in five minutes. We're leaving in two minutes. Okay, we're getting in the car. And the kid's going, wait, I thought I had five minutes. Now they can actually visually see what we're doing in the morning and where they need to be and what is happening. And it has streamlined our household so nicely. It's a beautiful thing. And that's a great example of using a visual effectively, because sometimes if you just put a list, they can't see the time blocks. Sometimes if you just put language, they can't visually see themselves. So you need to add pictures. And if you're constantly prompting them, then they're getting used to, well, I just need to wait till mom tells me to do something. They're not used to, oh, let me go look around and see if there are any tools that I can use to figure out what I need to be doing. So, I mean, that's another aspect of it too, where, you know, we've talked a lot about supports today, but but something else that you don't want to do that does sometimes happen in classrooms and in homes as well is that there's too much help. And then kids just learn to be passive and wait for someone to tell them what to do, which isn't really setting them up for success either. That's another whole episode. 
<laughs> I know. Yes. One question I love to ask all my guests is if they can share a memory that they remember from their elementary school years. Oh, my gosh. Let's see. Oh, there's so many. When I was in first grade, there was a debate on, you know, whether or not I should repeat first grade. So this is sort of a long term. Speaking of, you know, project-based learning and things over the long haul, I'll share that. So, yeah, I was debating on whether or not should she be held back. And my first grade teacher, because we were moving to a different town, I was going to be going to a different school. And she said, no, but you should definitely make sure that she gets some help in reading over the summer. So I did go to summer school, but I also, the way that my summer looked was a little bit, there was academic time, but then there was lots of time, you know, lots of pool time and time for play. And by the time I was in third grade, I was up to grade level in reading and math. And then by eighth grade, I was in the one level above, like the accelerated. So what that taught me is just the importance of balancing all those different things, you know, focusing on the important foundational skills like persistence and doing things that were challenging to me, but that in the long run were beneficial. And I did sometimes get pulled out of class to go work with someone, but eventually I didn't have to do that anymore and I was able to be successful. And And I think that it definitely helped me to get over that hump of reading being difficult to being an avid reader and enjoying it. And I think that sometimes when kids are avoiding things, it's because they don't feel successful. So helping kids get the support that they need through those learning curves so that they can be confident and realize that something that is challenging at the beginning can actually be something they enjoy in the long term is, I think, a really important lesson. How can listeners get in touch with you, Dr. Karen? So I have, if they want to learn more about the De Facto Leaders podcast, where I have a number of different guests, I interview therapists, teachers, school administrators, other people who are involved in helping kids K-12 age be successful in some way or showing leadership. You can find the De Facto Leaders podcast at defectoleaders.com. And then also I'm on all the different directories. And then my website, if you want to learn more about some of the programs that I offer, I have two separate websites. One of them is for my more speech pathology specific things, and that's drkarenspeech.com. And my website that's a little bit more focused on the whole school team, executive functioning, universal design, that is drkarendudagbrennan.com. And then I do have a free guide where I do talk about how executive functioning support can look and what everyone's role can be on a school team. And to download that guide, people can go to drkarendudakbrennan.com backslash EF schools. I'm on LinkedIn as well. So people are welcome to connect with me on there. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's it for another episode of Rebel Educator. Thank you for joining us and thank you for spending your limited time with us learning how to be rebels in education. If you'd like to learn more or access our project library, you can go to rebeleducator.com. If you'd like to learn more about our progressive elementary and middle school in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out upacademy.com. Interested in learning more about our Rebel Literacy Project curriculum or launching your own school and joining our affiliate network? Visit projectup.us. And if you haven't read it yet, 
Pick up your copy of my book, Rebel Educator, Create Classrooms Where Impact and Imagination Meet on Amazon or anywhere you read or listen to your books. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Look forward to talking to you soon. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. There are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. Do you want to save time on prep work? Increase achievement for all student populations? Reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash B-E.